Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. Everyone, my name is Hannah, as Paul said, and I am Waterstone's newest preaching resident. It is such an honor to be with you guys this morning. Um, and first off, I'm going to start by reading our scripture for today. It comes from Isaiah 55, and it'll be on the screens. It says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me, listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for every person, every heart that has entered this room or onto this live stream, God. Lord, I pray that this morning we would take a deep breath. Lord, that we would rest in your promises and that we would be encouraged today by your word. God, we trust you with this time and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. So have you ever felt forgotten? Maybe um, you've ever felt like an afterthought or you actually were left out on purpose, you were purposefully excluded. 
Well, right now, something fun about me is that I'm 27 and I'm also from Texas. Go Rangers. Um, <laughs> um, and that means one thing, and it means that every single person in my life is getting married. Everyone. So many weddings. And you know, there's that moment when you're like, oh my gosh, my friend got engaged. Surely. I am getting an invite, I'm gonna make the cut. We were in the same group of friends that went to prom together in like 12th grade, it'll be fine. And then there's that awkward amount of time between the cute Instagram post and the wedding day, and unfortunately, sometimes it creeps closer and closer, and sometimes you realize, oh, the save the dates already went out, and I don't think I am invited to this wedding. Hmm. And so you think to yourself, oh, you know what, they're doing a small wedding. That's what it is. Okay, they're eloping, that's totally their vibe, it's totally fine. Or maybe you do some mental gymnastics of, you know what, she is just the best. I live in Colorado, this wedding is in Texas. She knows how expensive flights are, honestly. What a good friend to not invite me to her wedding, wow. She's just the best. <laughs> but oftentimes, at least for me, the next thought that arises is, oh, well maybe we're actually not as close as I thought we were. Or sometimes even worse, Maybe I wasn't even on her mind. Let's talk about a tough pill to swallow. But this is so real, isn't it? Feeling forgotten. And maybe it's not something like a wedding invite. Maybe in your life you have felt full on neglected. Like someone chose actively to not choose you. Maybe you were in a dating relationship that was really unhealthy, or an unhealthy friendship, or even a marriage. Or maybe you had a parent that chose everything, event, and person over you, leaving you to feel alone, having to fend for yourself, and wondering, well, do I, am I even worthy? Because if I was, this wouldn't, be happening. Or maybe you have felt neglected by God. And you've experienced all this hardship and pain and suffering and God has never felt farther away from you. He has never felt more distant. And you're asking him, you're like, God, where are you? Do you even see me? And the pain that I am experiencing only to be met with silence leaving you to question if he's really there and if he really even cares. You see, Israel in this passage is right in the thick of this feeling. If we back up to chapter 54, here is what verses five through seven say. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife 
deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment, I abandoned you, but with deep compassion, I will bring you back. And so Israel, in this moment, is stuck in exile about feeling either forgotten or completely neglected by God. And although at this point in Isaiah, Israel has been told the exile is over, you can go home, it doesn't mean that there's not this lingering feeling of abandonment by God. Why did he let these things happen to us? Is he really good? Israel has lost faith in who their God is and they've started going their own way. They've been worshiping Babylon's gods because, okay, well, if this God isn't listening, maybe another one will. And they're believing this lie that God has neglected them in the exile, but here God provides clarity. And he says, this was never meant to be forever. This was for judgment, not because I ever stopped caring about you. And in these chapters, God is offering up an invitation to his people through the work of the suffering servant that Paul talked about last week. And they can choose to respond in one of two ways. They can respond with humility and repentance and then experience the blessing of the coming Messiah or they can choose to reject him. And so where we find ourselves here in Isaiah 55, his peop- uh, God is inviting his people to come back to him now that exile is over. And here in this chapter, we see a beautiful biblical pattern. God interacts with his people by fixing the things that we have messed up. But what does this pattern actually look like? Well. It first looks like an invitation like we see in verses one through five. The first thing God offers to his people is a feast and it's free of charge. He says, I have water, I have wine, I have milk, I have food for you. It doesn't cost a thing. He's saying the exile is over. It's time to come home. But you may have experienced this where when you feel forgotten by God or that he's not listening, it can be really hard to remember his character. And even though he's proven to be faithful in the past, it's only natural to be a little bit wary of his invitation. And now this is reminiscent to me of being friend-zoned. And if you're not familiar with this term, maybe you have gotten to date every person that you've ever had a crush on, or maybe you met the love of your life in middle school, I don't know. But for all of you who are unfamiliar, being friend-zoned is when you come to a person that you have feelings for, romantic feelings, and you say, I really like you romantically, only to be met with a response like, oh, but we're just such good friends. Mm, ouch. Or, even worse, in my opinion, is, oh, I just see you as my sister in Christ. <laughs> pain. That is painful. <laughs> 
And so when someone actually comes along, and if this is what your life has looked like most of the time, someone comes along one day and is like, oh my gosh, I really like you. I would like to date you. It's only natural because of this experience that you've had to say, hmm, you're kidding, right? Like, oh, you don't really know how this normally goes. Normally I like someone and they don't reciprocate, so this must be a joke, you must be kidding. And this person's standing there like, what do you mean? I just, I, I just expressed my feelings for you. And it's only natural for us to do this and to push away when that invitation is finally there because we've created a false narrative in our mind that no one will ever choose us. So why would they do it now? And Israel knows who God has been in the past, but with everything they've been experiencing, they are questioning the relationship status with God. And enduring a season of exile and judgment naturally would lead you to overthinking. And when we feel relationally distant from someone, it's natural to overthink and then fill in the gaps of the information that we don't have. For example, I am a chronic overthinker. When I feel distant from a good friend and I don't know where that distance came from, a lot of the time, I can start to insert into this narrative crazy thoughts of why they could possibly be mad at me. Something like, you know what, we got dinner like three weeks ago and um, I said a joke and she laughed, but now that I'm thinking about it, did she actually laugh? And maybe she's just been mad at me and hasn't told me for like three weeks and now here I am and now we, we were relationally distant. I don't, I don't know what happened. And if you're anything like me, you can begin to spiral and even start to avoid that person as the perceived tension continues to build. And then, when you finally get the courage to ask about it, it turns out that she's acting distant because work is really stressful, she's exhausted, and she hasn't been outside in like three days. Oh, so that joke did, was funny, and you're not mad at me. What happens is that my perspective on the situation and the reality of the situation are worlds apart. But we do this all the time. It's so easy for us to do. And have you ever felt this way with God? When we feel far from him, we can start to believe this lie that we have gone too far for God to even want for us to come home. We say things like, you know what, I've ruined it. I've sinned way too much. Or, God has given me so many chances and I am still stuck in this sin pattern. Surely he wouldn't want me now. And imagine if this spiraling can happen over a couple of days, can you imagine being Israel? They have been in exile for years. People have died in exile and they've lost hope. They've turned to other things to satisfy their needs, but they've been left feeling dissatisfied, living in a state of despair and utterly forsaken. But then God comes in to adjust that perspective. 
So he offers for them to join a feast that he has prepared for them, and then he reminds them of his covenant. In verse three, Isaiah writes, give ear and come to me, listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful promise to David. Wait, so God hasn't forgotten about me. No, God says, I still love you and I'm coming once again to mend what you've broken. And once God extends this invitation, he asks us to respond in verses six and seven. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. God says that we can respond by doing two things, forsaking our ways and turning to the Lord. He invites us to repentance. And repentance is an action. It is making the active choice to decide that God's way is better. We come into agreement with our creator when we repent. But what does this actually look like? Well, if you've been in church for any length of time, or maybe even been church adjacent, you've probably heard of the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. In this story, there is a father with two sons, and the younger son um, goes to his father one day and he says, I want my inheritance and I'm gonna go and live my own life. And so he grabs all of his stuff, he tells his family goodbye, and then he goes off to a faraway land and squanders it completely to the point where he is literally living with pigs. Talk about rock bottom. And talk about feeling too far gone. And so one day he decides, you know what, I need to go home. My serv- the servants at my father's house are living a better life than the one I am living. So he picks himself up, he dusts himself off, and he makes the journey home. And the whole way home, he's rehearsing this speech. And he's saying, okay, dad, like, I know that like, I basically wished that you were dead because that's when you get your inheritance normally. So I'm gonna go home And I'm just gonna ask that you would have me as your servant because I know that I am not worthy to be your son. We've all done something like that, right? We rehearse an entire conversation with the person before we actually have it because we wanna make sure we have every perfect response, every rebuttal, every explanation possible just in case it goes as poorly as we think that it will, especially when we know we've done wrong. But before the son can even get down the road, his father sees him and he's been waiting day after day for his son to come home. And he gets up and he runs and he meets his son at the end of the road. And before his son can even get out the speech, his father wraps him in a hug, puts the family ring back on his finger and says, welcome home, my son. Now there are two things I wanna point out from this story. First, is that the prodigal son had to make the choice to come home. 
And the father was waiting outside every day until his son came home. And then he ran out to meet him. I think that sometimes as believers, we can forget that we are invited by God but never forced to love him. It's always a choice. And maybe you're not a Christian and you've been taught that God cannot wait to punish you, that he cannot wait until you come into his presence so he can strike you down or, and that's what you've learned about our God. And maybe this image of a loving, forgiving Father God is new for you. And as we look back at Isaiah 55, verse six says, call on him while he is near. God is already near. Israel has felt so far from God, but he has never been far from them. Praise the Lord. He is, this is the beauty of God's redemptive pattern in human history, Old Testament and new. It's always the same. God invites us, he asks us to respond, and then he brings about redemption. Not because of our worthiness, or how much we've done to earn it, but because of his character. And when we repent, God's promise is that he will freely pardon us. And we live in a world where when we break trust with somebody, we have to fight to get every inch that we have lost. We have to earn it back piece by piece. We have to overcompensate and say, if I just do enough, maybe, maybe you'll love me again. Maybe you'll trust me again. But God is not like people, church. God is inviting his people to come back to him after they have sprinted in the opposite direction. And in verse eight, that's why God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Unlike people, God is saying, all you have to do is turn back to me and trust me. You don't have to earn it. And so God offers us the same options that he offers Israel. We can choose him or we can choose to reject him and go our own way. But the question you might be asking is, how can we trust that God's way is better? Because if I'm Israel, I'm thinking, God, in my lifetime, Majority of my life, I have experienced exile. I've experienced your judgment, pain, and suffering, feeling farther from you than ever. Your way doesn't really feel better. And what do we do with that? Well, we have to make a choice. Are we going to believe God or not? And we live in a society that loves to define good and bad right and wrong for ourselves. We say things like, the heart wants what it wants. But if you've ever followed your heart, it might work for a little while, but it often leads to more heartache and it doesn't seem to be making us any happier, any more whole, any healthier. Why? Because our hearts are fickle. We change what we wanna do like all the time, like every five minutes. And as a society, our heart changes every five minutes, which leads to us feeling afraid of getting canceled or cut out or cut off. 
and we're all doing our own thing, and it leads to fear and isolation and loneliness. And it forces us to constantly ask the question, when will they abandon me? Because it feels inevitable. And Israel has a people, as a people has felt far from and forgotten by God for so long that they have started to equate the heart of God with the heart of the world. But God is reminding us and his people here that his heart is not fickle. Where we are used to inconsistency, God is perfect and loving and powerful and no matter how far we run, he always comes back for his people. He is not afraid of our mess and he won't turn away when we ask him to forgive us. And unlike the world, when we ask for forgiveness, when we repent, it leads to greater intimacy and not abandonment. And I don't know about you, but with how our world is today, I would much rather trust in a constant, unchanging God than in my own fickle heart. And what we've seen so far is that God invites us, and then he asks us to respond. So if we do those things, what happens next? Well, in this last section of Isaiah 55, there is this stunning image of hope. And he depicts it using nature. It's full of joy and peace and flourishing. And I want to focus on the last verse. Verse 13 says, Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. And this could be really easy to pass over. Um, and just a little bit about me, um, I am not a plant girl. Um, I love plants, but if you ask any of my roommates, I can't take care of one whatsoever. And if you've ever thought to yourself, wow, I should get Hannah a plant as a present, please don't. It will die. I am so sorry. Um, in fact, for my birthday this year, I had two friends get me a stuffed animal, well, a stuffed succulent, because that was a better choice than me having an actual plant. <laughs> but what's so beautiful about plants is that they're, they're just overflowing with imagery and they're all throughout the Bible. And he mentions first thorn bushes. This is a thorn bush. They're spiky, they're painful to the touch and dry as a bone. In ancient times, they actually would use this as a guard for their house, like a security system almost. Why? Well, to keep unwanted people out. And what I'm not saying here is that we should leave our doors unlocked at night <laughs> or that we should take out our ring system or anything like that. Security systems are good and they make sense. But what I am saying is that there is an underlying assumption here. It is, I know how the world is and I don't know who's out there. And so I have to defend myself because if I don't, nobody else will. No one will come. I have to do it. And there's a looming fear that comes when we feel most vulnerable and alone. And thorn bushes represent sin, sorrow, hardship, and pain in the Bible. The people of God are feeling the need to protect themselves from everything, including God 
Like, is God really safe? Is he who he says he is? Can we trust him? But then God mentions juniper. Now, juniper is actually a healing agent. It can be used to heal stomach issues, various infections, it's lush and beautiful. And it can be used for spices, produces a sweet aroma, and their seeds take one to three years to develop. And once they do, they last for a really long time. They symbolize cleansing, calm, strength, and protection. God is saying that he is going to transform their thorn bushes into juniper, where they felt afraid and forgotten and alone. God is promising rest and relationship and healing. Where they felt brittle, God is providing strength. And then he uses another similar image, briars and myrtle. Briars are similar to thorn bushes, and they have these really tiny thorns that are really painful if you like fall into them. And they actually symbolize woundedness. Have you ever heard the saying, hurt people hurt people? It's kind of the idea. But then there's myrtle. And like juniper, it is also a healing agent. It helps fight fungus and bacteria, and it can even reduce swelling, and it produces these white flowers, which require a long, hot summer in order to bloom. How fitting of an image for a people who have just come out of exile. Myrtle is a symbol of youth, love, devotion, and forgiveness, but my favorite thing about myrtle is that in ancient cultures it was actually given to the bride on her wedding night as a symbol of covenant love. God is saying that he will take their woundedness and transform it into restored relationship. He's once again faithful to his covenant and all he's doing is asking for his people to be part of it. And now, these images remind me of one of our dogs we have at home. This is Mr. Darcy. Yes, he is cute, and yes, he is named after a character from Pride and Prejudice, um, and we love him. Um, and when my, when my roommate Mary adopted him, um, he had been rescued from an abusive home. He had little scars on his nose, and the shelter had actually named him Eeyore, because he just looked that sad all the time. But don't fret, Mary came to the rescue. Mary grew up with dogs and knew she wanted one when we moved out out to Denver. And so as soon as she saw him, she knew it was meant to be. And so she brought him home and y'all, he was afraid of everything. He wouldn't let anyone touch him. And anytime anyone would reach out a hand of gentleness to pet him, he would run in the opposite direction and cower under the table because he had only associated hands with pain. And he's lived with us for nearly three years now, and he's actually learned that we are safe place. He's still skittish. It's kind of part of his personality, we've realized. <laughs> but he will actually crawl up on my lap sometimes when we're on the couch at home, and he's come such a long way. But I think Darcy is a perfect image for us of what it actually looks like to repent and choose God. Darcy was so used to cruelty 
that he could not differentiate between good and bad for himself. He just assumed the worst. And it took him a really long time to trust us. But now that he knows and has seen over time that we love him and we're committed to him, he's learned to trust us. And now Darcy did not deserve his suffering. He was just a cute little pup in a bad situation. But here in Israel's story, their suffering was a direct result of their choices. God's people were actively harming their relationship with God and they didn't deserve his kindness. Darcy deserves all the kindness. Israel didn't deserve it. And yet God still came back for them. The amazing thing about God's redemptive pattern is that in spite of our own failings, God moves toward us. His suffering servant in Isaiah 53 will come back. And like a bridegroom for his bride, the church, the, uh, sorry, the more, more than that, he will come for every single one of us. The covenant love represented in the myrtle is God's covenant love for his people, for us, that can never be broken. This is God's redemptive pattern. And this is not a promise that nothing bad will ever happen to us. Because as we know, life is hard, pain and suffering are real, and the world is broken, but this is not an individualistic promise. It's a corporate one. God will always redeem his people. His plan is and will always be to fix what we have messed up, not because we deserve it, but because he is just that good. And as we go into this next song of worship and communion, I invite you to reflect. We're singing about the goodness of God and it says, here's where the dead things come back to living. I feel my heart beating again. It feels so good to know that you are my friend. And maybe today you're here and you've never known this God, this loving, forgiving God. And maybe today God is inviting you to try out his way, maybe for the first time. Or maybe you've known God for a really long time, but Recently, you've noticed that you're trying to go both his way and your way, and as you continue to try to do both, you're feeling that tension, and maybe God is asking you to repent and offer those things back to him. Or maybe you just feel really far away from God right now, and you just need a reminder that he loves you, and so he's inviting you to sit in his presence, fully known, and fully loved. And wherever you find yourself today, I challenge you, as Isaiah writes, to seek the Lord, believing the promise of Isaiah that he is near and he's ready whenever you are. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for every person in this room, God. Thank you for your redemptive pattern, God, that you are not far from us, that you have never left our side. Lord, and I pray that as we go into this time of communion, we would remember the sacrifice of your son that sealed the promise that you will be close to us forever, Lord. I pray that we would reflect 
that we would sit in your presence, fully known and fully loved. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.